So here we are. We've been practicing together for pretty much a day. And you might wonder at times, you know, what's this all about? What are we doing? So I'd like to offer some thoughts and reflections with regard to the situation that we find ourselves in here on retreat. Or perhaps we could say the situation we find ourselves in, being alive. What is it for us to be here in this condition, to be inhabiting the space of this retreat, to be inhabiting the space of our life which exists between a birth that we did not choose and a death we cannot control. What does it mean to live in this circumstance? At least we chose to come on retreat. I imagine most of you did. If uh, someone had forced you into it or tricked you into it, you'd have probably uh, headed home by now, if you had any sense anyway. Um, Of course, if you chose to be here, that's a different thing. And yet, what did we choose when we come here? Coming into a situation such as this where we're engaging in spiritual practice and a certain degree of discipline and challenges presented to us, it seems. What's that like? It might sound like rather idyllic. There's this beautiful grounds and this lovely old country house that's been converted into relatively comfortable accommodations and there's three meals a day provided in rather wonderful, wholesome food and a good bunch of, uh, mostly it seems, friendly and uh, gentle folk to spend our day with. Wow, what a nice place to go. How much fun that will be, we might imagine. And yet, what's the experience actually like? Of course, there can be moments of appreciation, of enjoyment, and many indeed. But there's also the sense of somehow being exposed to our life, to feeling our life more directly, more intimately, in a way that, while at one sense might be refreshing, can also be quite challenging and confronting. Because we're not used to, we're not familiar, most of us I don't think, with actually being left this closely in the proximity of our experience for an extended period of time. We're used to kind of dipping into what's actually going on, but mostly dropping out, so to speak, or heading off to something else in the way that we tend to live in our minds, in our reactivity, in our habits. And so what is it like for you to actually feel the simple existence of sitting and walking, standing and moving, eating and resting, The various things we did here today, you've probably done every day of your life. Maybe the qigong you didn't do, but probably you moved your arms and your legs in different ways. Maybe you listened to some music or you certainly heard (coughs) some sounds. Everything here is rather ordinary, apart from the injunction to be attentive. And the fact that there's a lot of support for that here. There's not so many distractions Not so many engagements that we could occupy ourselves or lose ourselves in. 
And actually, you know, although it sounds like it should be idyllic and lovely and delightful in every moment, at least that's what we try to make it sound like on the brochure, but what's the experience like? It's really hard sometimes, isn't it? For some, it's really hard most of the time, initially. So hopefully, even within a day, one sees enough of the the flux and the change of it to realize it's not fixed. The way it is today is not how it will be in the future. But there's something about being in contact with our body and our mind that initially seems not to be easy. (coughs) We experience discomfort and pain, drowsiness, restlessness. We experience sort of a mind that's agitated, that's excited, that's frantic, that's bored, that's tired, that's weary. And experiencing it actually isn't easy for us, often. Letting ourselves feel what it's like to be in our experience. And this is like life. Life isn't easy. If it was like the fairy tales, probably spiritual practice would never have arisen. Everybody would be confident and content with living happily ever after. Whatever comes first, I guess, is usually pretty tough, but um, happily ever after. It's like there's something in us that's drawn to what that might represent, I think, to find true happiness, something that sustains. But all too often, the way we go about it doesn't actually work. And it's like we have this precious gift called being alive. It's something remarkable. And yet, it didn't come with instructions. It's like you get given this really nice toy and you've got no instructions and you can tell it should be able to do these amazing things, but you've got no idea how to get it to do that. It could be really frustrating. There's a way in which we can understand meditation is learning to read the instructions that our life is actually giving us. And spiritual practices opening ourselves to the feedback, to the information that's actually there, but which we don't always notice because we're looking somewhere else. We're looking away from where we are for the answers. When the answers are always and only right here. Not that there's some kind of simple answer that you could write down, and or if someone should write it down, um, one could read it and that would be it. Otherwise we'd write it down at the beginning of the retreat and pass it out and we could all go home, or at least uh, hang out in the sofas in the lounge for the week. There's something else to be understood that we can't just be told. We have to learn it through our own experience. So there's something challenging about being alive, something to be understood about being alive. And the way we begin this process is by seeing, well, what's happening here? What what are we doing? Because mostly I would say, until we've, one way or another, come in contact with some deeper wisdom, which may come through spiritual teachings or in other ways, 
But until such time, what I think for most of us happens, and certainly this was my experience, is that there's this sort of hope we have that somewhere other than where I am, or something other than what is here, when I get to that place or get hold of that thing or create that experience or relationship or circumstance, that at that point I will have arrived where I wanted to be all along. And I'll know it, of course, straight away. And I'll be able to relax, sit down, kick back, and that'll be it. I can retire from this wearying process. The sense of that hope that seems to sit in front of us, that peace and satisfaction are somewhere else. Because this body, this mind, this experience can't possibly be what I'm looking for. And yet, there's a sort of implication to this, which is that we're caught up in a momentum that never seems to come to an end. We're seeking to be comfortable, to be at ease so much of the time. We don't want physical discomfort. We don't want mental discomfort. We don't want emotional discomfort. And so we're basically tuned or sort of focused on high alert to notice if there's anything that's uncomfortable or painful, I need to figure out how to get rid of it as soon as possible. Or if there's something that's pleasurable or enjoyable or comfortable, I need to figure out how to keep hold of it or to get it and keep it as quickly as I can. And this basic tendency that we can live within can drive us through our lives if we don't question it, if we don't look at it. To avoid pain, to gain pleasure. I mean, if we could do it, it would make sense, actually. It would seem to be a good thing, it seems. But we can't do it. I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody who managed to get their life to be so that it was all pleasant and there was nothing painful. I just don't think it happens. Certainly not to anyone I've encountered. And even for the ones I haven't encountered, there's not so many who seem to have stopped trying to get their life into that condition to suggest that they might have succeeded. We can't control our experience. This is something that we face in a retreat. This is something that is not an accident in the situation that we have placed ourselves in. Whether you knew you were going to do that or not, of course, is another matter. But we're here feeling what it is to be in a life that is not in my control or your control. So many different things we need to be comfortable. Just even the temperature, how hard it is to get comfortable. Not too hot, not too cold. Sometimes people are wrapped up with blanket after blanket and it's because it's cold. But of course, sometime later, those very people who had to put on all the blankets to get warm, it's only peeling blankets off because it's getting too hot now. Central heating's come in. We're trying to get comfortable. We adjust our posture this way and that. We adjust it this way and our knee starts to hurt. We move it away from there and the back's now hurting. It's 
kind of like, where can I rest? Where can I stop? Does this process ever come to an end? Often we think when my mind, if my mind would stop, then, here at least on a retreat, I could be calm, I could be peaceful. That would be the resolution to my problem. But does the mind stop? Well, occasionally it slows down, it seems. Sometimes it slows down enough that it falls asleep. And that's not what we were trying to make happen. Or sometimes it slows down enough that we think, hey, wow, this is really nice. My mind slowed down. I wonder how long it's going to last. What did I do to make it slow down? And we realise, of course, our mind has just speeded up again. Like The conditions we seek to create don't sustain. We get our body posture and suddenly we think, I've got it now, yeah, this is it. Stable, alert, relaxed, just like they said. Yep, I'm here. It's happening. <coughs> breath's coming in, breath's going out. And then a few moments later, we're sure we didn't move. But our body's somewhere else. It's kind of over here. We're back there. What happened? What, what was going on? A lot of the time, I think what's happening is that we're not really in touch with the experience. We're in touch with our idea of it, our hope for it, or our fear about it. So we don't notice what's going on that much because we're not really in touch. This is how we come on a retreat and find that actually this remarkably simple instruction, just be present and notice your experience, connect with your body and your breath. It's really quite simple, (coughs) but it's one of the most challenging things we can undertake. Because there's this, this, this sort of momentum, this urge that seems to be driven by a dissatisfaction or a discomfort or a, a dis-ease with how we are, with where we are, with what we are. Although we've never really necessarily looked that carefully at what it is that's happening. And together with that, that urge and that movement is this almost unspoken belief that just around the corner, just in the next moment or the next situation or the next day or the next sitting, it's going to be better. It's going to sort itself out. And then this process will come to an end. But it doesn't actually work like that. And this we can see for ourselves. There's a uh, rather wonderful story of Mullah Nasruddin, who's a uh, a Sufi teaching figure, both a wise man and yet it seems at times a fool, although one suspects his foolishness is simply to wake us up to our own. And Nasruddin is one day uh, was found sitting in the corner of the village square on market day, with a large pile of red-hot chilies in front of him. And as one of his friends walks up to him, Nazarin is seen to... He's eating these chilies. And his face is bright red. His nose and eyes are streaming. He's clearly quite distressed by the experience. But he's picking up these chilies and eating them. And his friend comes up, he says, Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? Nazarin 
looks at him, picks up another chili, bites into it, and his whole body shudders with the, with the pain and the heat of this experience. And through the tears, he, he smiles, he says, I'm eating these chilies. His friend says, Mullah, Mullah, I can see you're eating those chilies. Why are you eating those chilies? Nazarin says, I keep hoping to find a sweet one. And it's kind of ironic, isn't it? We can laugh at the foolishness of such an endeavour, knowing the nature of chilies is not to be sweet. And yet we can go through life if we're not conscious of it, if we're not aware of it. We can go through life constantly looking for something else or somewhere else or someone else to be, to get, or to do it for us. In the belief that somehow that is possible. But all the people you've known, all the places you've been, all the things you've experienced up till now, if they haven't done that, why should you believe that a different one is going to do any better? It's an enchanting fantasy, but one which by understanding the true basis of happiness, we can release ourselves from the grip of, from the intoxication with. It's like this process just goes on and on, habitually, unconsciously it seems. I remember when I was a teenager growing up in a small country town in New Zealand, there wasn't really a lot of uh, social activity available apart from going to the pub. And so from about the age of 16, even though of course <coughs> we weren't supposed to be going till we were 20, mostly the police didn't mind that we went to the pub because it was better than driving around in cars on the roads. So um, we would congregate, our friends and that, my friends. And It took me probably about three years to work out what was happening, but we would go down two or three times a week to the pub, drink quite a lot. And at some point it struck me, that we spent a lot of time talking about what a great time we had the last time we did this and what a great time we ha- were going to have the next time we did this. And this is mostly what we talked about. But when I actually noticed that and asked myself, well, how is it right now? I thought, it's not much fun at all. I'm not actually really enjoying this experience. But because I'm telling myself how good it was the last time, I'm looking forward to how good it will be the next time, I managed to avoid noticing that. And in the process, the, the breweries and all that made a lot of money out of me. And there's a sort of a, a moment where we say, ah, oh, actually this isn't taking me where I have imagined it is. And so then why would I want to do that with my life? Why would I want to do that with my time, with my energy? For me, this was my probably first glimmer of a sense of what spiritual teachings would later make more clear. Which is is this relentless process that in the tradition we call samsara. It's like, it's not a, it's a perfume, isn't it, samsara? It's kind of interesting how a lot of the language has been sort of taken out of context into a mainstream culture. And it is the sense of being on a wheel, just going round and round and round, like a, like a little gerbil or hamster in a cage, running, running, running on its wheel, and yet going nowhere. 
That experience is part of what we encounter in our mind, in its momentum, how it's spinning, 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 looking towards the past and the future for the resolution of our life. Looking into the past to see why I experienced pain in the past so that I can avoid it in the future. Looking into the past to see how I managed to experience pleasure in the past so I can repeat it in the future. And we stay in the past and the future because we believe that somehow this will be the solution, the satisfaction of our life. But the effect of it is this momentum, this drivenness that is exhausting. It's exhausting. You come here and wonder why sitting around doing very little, you know, if you were to tell your friends at home what you did today, you know, and they'd never done this before. Well, we sat on a few cushions for, you know, half or three quarters of an hour and we went and ambled back and forth, you know, probably covered 200 yards in total over 45 minutes. And we did it again and then we had lunch. And I was exhausted so I had a nap after lunch. And I thought, hmm? And then, <laughs> then we did much the same in the afternoon with a bit of, you know, other gentle movements thrown in. And by tea time, it was like, wow, it's been a long day. They wouldn't believe why we're so impacted by this experience. Part of the tiredness is because we actually begin to feel just the weariness of life with that momentum, that drivenness. And part of it is because it actually requires quite a lot of energy to begin to disentangle from that momentum. To not be carried by that stream, as Jatendra was speaking this morning. To stand steady in the current of our habitual, habituated and conditioned ways of being. So we, we come into our experience here and we encounter this. And we begin to consider, well, what's going on here? How else could I engage with this? With this experience, we have the instruction, the invitation to, to come back again and again and feel into, contact, sense directly what's happening right now, again, and again, and again. And it's like much of the time there's this urge that's saying, get me out of here, I want to go somewhere else. This isn't good enough. This isn't fun enough. This is too uncomfortable or boring or it's not solving my life. And it doesn't necessarily use those words every time, but it's just expressed in this this momentum, this urge that is felt as really uncomfortable if we don't enact it, which is why we usually do, why we get up, run about, do things. Here we're encouraged to be still, to move slowly and mindfully. And we feel that that discomfort, that edge. It takes an immense degree of courage and a love of one's own life to do this work. Because it's not easy. And yet, if we can connect with a deeper sense of the aspiration of our life, to find true happiness, to find, to discover the end of suffering, to realize freedom. 
This can support us in the endeavour, in the endeavour that we have undertaken. It's like the sense of, you know, what am I doing here? Sometimes, it's a good question to ask actually, what am I doing here? But sometimes it's not really a question, it's more like a statement of, I don't want to be here, what am I doing here? It can be sometimes we're sitting, and it's kind of like we've been trying to be upright and relaxed at the same time, which doesn't work. We're trying to find my breath in a body that feels like it's kind of thick or dense or dull, with a mind that's either whirring or fading out. And kind of, there's a point where maybe we say, I can't do this. This doesn't make any sense. We open our eyes. And this happens often. I sometimes am looking around, see how people are getting on, and see, someone opens their eyes, they look around. And it's like we look around, and it seems like everyone else is sitting really calm and really still. But for me, uh, no, I'm getting nowhere. It's like everyone else's practice is going really well, but mine, it's a waste of time. It's like I'm sitting here with 49 Buddhas and one overcooked vegetable. <laughs> and I'm Hopeless. Ah, despair. And so eventually one closes one's eyes and just in despair, sort of... Of course, a few moments later, the person sitting next to that person opens their eyes, looks around. That person's sitting really still. They seem very calm. Wow, maybe they're having some great meditation experience. And our mind starts creating all these stories about what's going on for others or for ourselves. It's like we have this need to somehow model and describe in a way that gives us a sense of being in control, a sense of knowing what's happening. But this process is not only something we cannot control, but it's something we can't track in a linear way with our mind. We have to trust the process of life. To actually be where we are. To hear that there is nowhere else to go. It's obvious at one sense. It can be even a relief. You know, great. Nowhere to go. And yet sometimes it's not that. It's more like, but I want to go somewhere. The last place I want to be is here. Yet what is that saying when we don't want to be where we are? It's like we're rejecting our life. We're rejecting what's being offered to us. And in that reaction, what happens is we become disconnected. We become disconnected from our experience. And it's actually that disconnection that's more deeply painful. That disconnection from life that's most deeply painful, much more so than the particular of our experience, which is either as we want it but doesn't necessarily last, or not as we want it and seems like it might be going to last. Although, ultimately, it never does. To not be trying to escape from where we are, is to begin to re-establish a connection 
with that quality or we could say that essential dimension of life, of our being, we could say of our nature, which is never absent from us, but which we, it seems, lose contact with because we're looking somewhere else, (coughs) because we're pulled away by the habits of the mind, pulled out of our experience, pulled out, it seems, even of our bodies into the space that is created by our mental activity. (coughs) And yet, in coming back and reconnecting, there's something that's there for us, that we notice, that we sense, that is kind of ordinary, and yet at the same time, extraordinary. It's not something that's simply the property of esoteric Eastern religions or spiritual teachings. It's something that's revealed in human experience and discovered again and again and again by people such as ourselves. And it's sometimes useful to put it kind of simply. There's a and I, I think in these terms, there's a uh, image that comes to mind often for me of a little sort of poster that was in the uh, kitchen of one of my neighbours as I was growing up, and I would sometimes see it when go over to visit. And it was a picture of a little girl in a sweet dress with a bonnet and a basket and a few cut flowers, just a simple line drawing. And it said, I mean, it's almost a little too sweet, saccharine sweet, but it said, "Don't worry, don't hurry." And don't forget to sniff the flowers. And in you know, one sense we could just, you know, oh yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And yet actually it says something really profound, actually. Don't worry. How much of our life are we driven by worry? Are we pushed by the attempt to resolve and escape our anxieties into a momentum that is exhausting and relentless and very rarely, if ever, seems to slow down. (coughs) Worry is such a pervasive condition in our culture. It's pretty much the disease of 21st century life. Worry and hurry. How much we rush trying to save time and yet actually... You can't save time, you can only live it. This, this, this condition that we seek to redress when we come on retreat. It's like, don't worry, because worry takes us out of where we are. That's its nature. Worry is about somewhere else, about something else. And it's a powerful force that we need to understand. But to understand that it's always happening here, where we are. Although it might seem to be about something else. It's always happening here. This is the place we can meet it. And when speaking about it, I'm often reminded of the the words of Mark Twain, who said with regard to this theme, I think he was speaking of it anyway, he said, Once uh, almost all of the worst experiences of my life 
never actually happened. And yet, worrying about things becomes the worst experience of our life. It's like an addiction. And it's so painful. So to, so to come into contact with our experience, to be willing to feel what may initially be discomfort, what may be initially something we want to move away from. If we're willing to do this, if we have the courage and the, the caring to undertake this endeavour, It offers us immense and rich possibility for transforming our life. Not necessarily by transforming what happens in our experience, but by transforming how we are with it, how we meet it, which is actually what determines more profoundly, more deeply, the quality of our life than what it is that's happening. And in order to do this, we need to take responsibility for how we are, for where we are. Which is not to say that we need to make ourselves at fault or in any way to be blamed for where we find ourselves, but we need to take responsibility. There's the story of a, uh, a wealthy businessman who was travelling to an important meeting in the countryside, out away from his normal workplace in the city, where he was intending and confident of making a very uh, lucrative deal. And he was driving through the small country lanes, uh, when at some point he realised that he was actually, in his rush to get to the meeting on time, he'd actually neglected to get proper instructions and he'd lost his way. He didn't know where he was. So he stopped the car when he saw this farmer working in the field. He said, called out to him, excuse me. And the farmer came over. He said, so can you tell me, um, what's the name of this road? Because I can't find it on my satellite navigation system, which doesn't seem to be having good reception out here. And the farmer said, I don't know, I'm sorry. I don't think I know the name of the road. Maybe it doesn't even have one. And the businessman said, okay, can you tell me the fastest way to get to a main road? And the farmer said, oh, actually, I don't know the fastest way to get to a main road. I just drive around these back lanes mostly myself. And the businessman's a little frustrated. He says, well, have you ever heard of uh, Crown Hall? I need to get to Crown Hall and very soon. It can't be far from here. The farmer said, no, don't know. Never heard that name. Doesn't ring any bells. The businessman's getting kind of irritated at this point. He says, you don't really seem to know much at all, do you? The farmer looks at him and smiles. He says, you know, that's true, but I'm not lost. (laughs) Knowing where we are is actually a precious gift we offer ourselves by being present. It requires us to take responsibility for the tendency to not be present. Not in any way to blame ourselves for it, because it's a habit and a conditioning that has perhaps developed over many decades, if not lifetimes. 
and takes some time to redress. We can't just decide, oh, I'll be present now and make it happen. I mean, that in itself is kind of humbling. This mind that we think is our own, which really isn't. It doesn't do what we tell it to. If it doesn't do what we tell it to, what ownership do we have of it? Not much at all. And so taking responsibility for the condition of our heart and mind. This is the process that we're engaged in. This is the journey we've undertaken. And what does it mean to take responsibility? It doesn't mean to blame ourselves for what's going on, by any means. But to see what is possible as a way of responding to it. To be responsible. Enable our capacity to respond to where we are, to what is happening. To not blame our condition on things outside. To not say, oh, you know, I'm lost because the farmer wouldn't tell me where I was. It'd be quite easy to say that, wouldn't it? It's true in a certain sense. If the farmer had told the businessman where he was, he wouldn't have been lost anymore. It's like saying, well, I'd be happy if it wasn't for this or for that. It seems like that's the cause. But it's not necessarily so. So there's a process of training that's involved. A process of cultivating, of developing our capacity to connect, to be present, to deepen our relationship to the experience that is unfolding right here and right now. And as a way we could imagine, it's like it's with training the heart and mind, supporting ourselves to develop a wholesome way of being. The initial training that we're emphasizing is to do with that simple quality of being present being present and seeing how the mind moves, how it goes and does what it does. And for many people what tends to happen with that is we get frustrated with our mind. We get annoyed with our inner activity because it's not doing what we want it to do. It's not following the program that we think we've signed up for. And it's really important to be friendly, to be gentle, to be kind with your mind. To care for the difficulty and the suffering that is in this process. It's, it's perhaps like if you were training a puppy. Now, dogs are interesting creatures insofar as if you feed them, they'll eat what you give them, assuming it's you know, palatable to the creature. If you keep feeding them, they'll keep eating. If you keep feeding them, they'll keep eating. And actually... They'll eat until they're sick, if you give them that much food. Maybe not all of them, but it's, it's quite common. That's the case with dogs. And we would know that if you have a, have a dog, a puppy, if you just feed it and don't give it any exercise, it probably won't be a very happy creature. Imagine, we'd actually regard it as cruelty to simply feed an animal and never give it exercise. With our minds, it's rather similar. 
Feeding is what is like taking in stimulation, taking in experience. Sights and sounds and smells and tastes and thoughts and feelings and all the contact that we have. When we come on retreat, we reduce the level of feeding that's going on. We reduce the amount we're taking in. We simplify it. Because it's actually healthier not to be gorging all the time in that way. Just as for ourselves, it's not healthy to be eating all the time in terms of that form of nourishment. So we we stop overfeeding our mind and we start to exercise it. The process of connecting, being present, coming back is a form of exercise in which we're developing a certain capacity. We're supporting a natural capacity to strengthen. And the way we do that makes all the difference. So if, again, we go back to the image of this puppy, which I rather enjoy as, a, as an image for this process, it's like, so at some point, we're not just taking it for exercise, we realize that a puppy, in order to be happy in the human world, it needs to learn a few things. It needs to learn, for instance, to follow behind us when we tell it to. And the, the word we use is heal, I guess. Mostly that's the word, isn't it? never actually trained a puppy. I tried once when I was a kid, but my dad didn't think I was doing a very good job, so he gave it away, which is rather rather a shame. But uh, nonetheless, I enjoy puppies and such things. And uh, Imagine you're training a puppy to follow behind you. What, what do you do? This is what I imagine, because I haven't done it, as I said. You take the puppy, you put it behind <coughs> your heel, behind your foot, and you say, heel. What does the puppy do? Follows you as you walk along? No way. It goes running off at first opportunity. Runs off to sniff a flower, chase a butterfly, decorate a tree, whatever puppies do. It goes off and does it. Now, if when the puppy runs off, you run after and say, bad dog, grab it, give it a smack, put it back down. Heel! <coughs> Didn't you hear me? I said, heel! Runs off again, you give it another smack, put it back. After a little while, the puppy thinks, that guy's pretty grumpy, I'm not hanging around with him. And it's off even quicker than before. Makes sense, doesn't it? That's what would happen. Whereas if the puppy runs off, and you go, huh, there where you've gone. Come back here. Bring it back over here. Good dog. Heel. And it runs off again. Huh, there you are. That's where you've gone. Okay, come back. After a little while, the puppy starts thinking, oh, this guy's quite nice. Maybe I'll hang out here a bit more. Seems friendly. And that's actually how you train a dog to follow it's kind of remarkably similar how you train the mind to be present. Being clear with your intention, patient in your willingness to just keep doing this and yet coming back. Noticing what happened every time. Noticing where we are every moment that we're able to do so. And over time you'll begin to notice that actually it is possible to do this. We can become more established in that quality of presence, in which we are beginning to feel more deeply our connection to life. And in that connection we can begin to understand the mechanism and the process of life, whereby in the, in the seeking for satisfaction through pursuing experiences, through looking for something else, or to be somewhere else, or with someone else, 
in that process, what we actually do is take ourselves away from the source of satisfaction while seeking it. We take ourselves away from that which we are seeking by the very act of pursuing it in that manner. And as we see that going on and recognize that's what's happening, bring ourselves back more and more fully, more and more wholeheartedly to where we are. That sensing, that immediacy of experience that is presence, that is what happens when we're here, that we don't have to make happen, but which we connect with through our intention, through applying that intention. That begins to inform the deeper wisdom of our life. It begins to inform our experience. So we release ourselves. We begin to release ourselves from the entanglement of the mind. The mind that's driven, that's uncomfortable, and that seeks to resolve that discomfort by more of its own activity and fails to do so. So stepping out of that mental activity, coming in to our body, just a simple movement, no distance involved in fact, because we're already here. What we discover when we come back is we were already here. Fortunately, our body stayed here while our mind went off. And this is why it's such a useful reference point. It's always here. It's never been anywhere else. And neither have we, actually. But we forget. We forget that that is so. And something can start to speak to us from this place of presence, of connection, that's rather ordinary and yet has a a quality to it that's something that it's a little bit hard to say anything about, but which we recognize, which we can sense directly as having significance. And there's some sense of ease, of peace that comes as we allow ourselves to settle into this. We can recognize that it's actually the relief from that urge, that drivenness, that momentum. That's actually what we're looking for. And it doesn't matter so much what is happening right now. Because whatever is happening offers us the opportunity to connect. To touch and be touched by this moment. To feel and sense deeply life unfolding. Revealing itself again and again. Every time fresh, every moment anew. There's something in this. Not something exclusive or special in any way of being unusual, but something that when we begin to sense it, I think the heart just relaxes. Because there's a sense of being at home in our experience, in our life. A sense of being alive that we don't have when we're caught up, rushing, when we're not actually here.
And it becomes more clear that the way in which we become entangled with our experience is through the belief and the mistaken hope that it somehow is either the problem, which we have to fix, or the solution, which we have to attain. And yet experience is not this. It's the medium. It's the vehicle of our journey. But all of it has its place. All of it offers us the opportunity to connect and invites us to learn and discover what is true. The relationship that we form, the connection we make with the moment that we're in, this is where the quality, the richness, the nourishment is found. And this is never more than the moment in which we remember to come home. It's never more distant than that, remembering to come back. To be where we are. To be as we are. And yet to know that condition. As clearly as we are able. So we are asked and invited to learn to meet our life unconditionally. To not place conditions upon the experience that it must be like this or it must not be like that. It must only be comfortable and never difficult. Because... We will never get to that place. If we don't put conditions on our experience, if we don't make a demand upon it before we're willing to meet our life, if we meet it unconditionally, then our life itself becomes unconditional. The sense of boundness, of limitation actually lifts, dissolves, and life is revealed in its richness as it is. And this is something that's possible for each and every one of us. To understand, to experience, to know deeply. And so we engage in practice, in meditation, in retreat, in exploring this process of being here, to see what we're doing, to learn what truly serves us, and to see for ourselves what does not. It's our own experience that teaches in the end, that informs the understanding which can make a difference. And so this is what we give attention to again and again. So it's important to come back on occasion, to remember our aspiration, what it is we most deeply long for. Because the, the surface urges tend to get us into trouble, but they tend to be distortions of a deeper desire, a deeper movement that is towards truth, towards freedom, towards loving kindness and compassion. And to actually come back into the goodness, the wholesomeness of that, that calls us to engage with our life, 
to engage with this moment. To trust in the goodness of this and the potency of this. That is alive in our hearts and can become more and more fully alive in our lives. So I'd like to finish with a poem (coughs) by Rio Khan. The rain has stopped. The storm has passed. And the sky is clear again. When your heart is pure, All things in your world are pure. Abandon this fleeting world. Abandon your struggle with yourself. And then the moon and the flowers will guide you along the way. To allow yourself to receive the richness that is here. We could say the flowers. That are life. Life's experience revealing itself again and again. And to be open to receiving the light of the full moon. which in the Zen tradition represents the awakened mind. Let's just sit quietly for a moment or two together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.